Hello and welcome to the Coffee in the Green Room podcast. This is a show for rising talent, entertainment industry insiders, and those with a curiosity of what life is like in front of the camera. If you've ever struggled with getting started as a model, actor, or musician, well, that's exactly what we're going to help you with. Today's episode is hosted by Deneen White, writer, author, publicist, and TV host. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite cup of coffee, and welcome to Coffee in the Green Room. Coffee in the Green Room. Hey everyone, welcome to the VIP Ignite podcast. My name is Deneen White and I'm your host today. And I am so excited to have Richard Stratton on the show. Richard is a screenwriter. He is so many things and I cannot wait to have him just share his story with us. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Janine. It's my pleasure. So um, just to get started, first of all, I want to thank you so much for participating in the summit that we had a couple weeks ago with VIP Ignite. I just wanted you to know on behalf of all of us how much we appreciate you and how much you inspired people. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks that after listening to you speak, we're like, you know what? I didn't know I wanted to be a writer, but now I actually want to try writing. So thank you so much. Well, that's great. I'm glad to inspire people to write. It's an amazing way of life. You're your own boss. And if you can make a living at it, what could be better? You can do it in your own home. And uh, it's a great way to live. So I know you've used writing a lot in your life. So can you talk about how you got started with writing? The way I got started with writing was when I was in my senior year in high school, I had an English professor by the name of Dudley Cloud, who had formerly been an editor of the Atlantic magazine, Atlantic Monthly. And I remember I turned in an essay one time, and he, was, he gave me a high mark on it, and he said to me, you know, you have a, a talent. You, you're a very talented writer. And coming from Dudley Cloud at that point in my life, it stuck in my mind. And I thought, wow, that because he, he wasn't somebody to give those kinds of uh, attributes to someone if they didn't deserve it. It was, it was something that I, I took to heart. And I remember him saying that, and I also remember how much I enjoyed writing. So that stuck with me. I went away to college, and I started writing essays and short stories and poems and whatever I could while I was away at college and just it became my way of life. That's awesome. So you've used your writing a lot for a lot of social causes too, right? Like you, you're what's something that I've know, that I know about you is that like the books that you've written have really shed a lot of light on a lot of causes that people don't know a lot about. So how did you get started doing that? Well, you know, I think it was always just something that was part of my nature. Growing up in the 60s in America was a a time of tremendous social activism the way there is now. It's almost like we're living through those days all over again. And it was something that became close to my heart, uh, all different kinds of social activism. So it, it was a natural thing for me. Uh, and now to see 
what's going on in our country with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like it's happening all over again. It's amazing. It's never really gone away. It seems like in some respects the country has gone backwards, but but the, the spirit of the American people is still as much alive as it was back in the 60s. It is all over again now. And I think it was that, it was that calling that I felt. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, love, I love reading your books because the way that you explain things, it definitely gives a different perspective than anything I've ever had. So I, I really appreciate the way that you write and the way that you paint your pictures. It's just, it's so vivid. Well, thank you. You're I appreciate welcome. that. Writers always love to hear people tell them what good writers they are. Well, I, I could do that for the whole podcast if you want, but I want I want to I want to hear your story. So, um, so something I would love to know is you've been doing you've been writing for a long time, and you have you've done a, a ton of work. So, what are some things that you know now that you wish you knew when you first got started with writing? Ah, uh, well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that the one thing that I've realized, which has been kind of an ongoing learning experience for me, is just how difficult it is. The writer's life is really a difficult life. I mean, it's a great life because you're your own boss. You can do it at, at, on your own time, in your own place. But it's very difficult. It's really hard because basically it's it's a lonely lonely experience like i remember reading somewhere one great writer said it's a solitary sedentary experience meaning you do it alone and you do it sitting in a chair somewhere so it's not an easy way of life but it's a tremendously gratifying way of life when you finally write something that you're proud of and that, that other people respond to and are moved by it's a tremendous feeling it's a great experience so that's but but i don't think i realized exactly how difficult it is and how heartrending it can be how much self-discipline it takes because it really is all about disciplining yourself and making sure that you sit yourself down and work on it every day how do you find that discipline when you're like oh i just don't feel like doing this like how do you find that discipline you know, uh, a great writer who was my mentor, Norman Mailer, who, God bless him, has passed on to that writer's room up in the sky somewhere. He actually gave me and other people who bothered to read what he had to say about writing a lot of valuable lessons. And one of them was that just before you go to bed at night, to think about what it is that you're going to do the next day, I actually meditate usually at night before, just before I go to bed and think about what it is that you want to do the next day in your writing, what your plans are. And then you have to stick to that. You have to do it because if you wake up and you go, oh, well, I don't feel like it today, you've somehow you've disappointed your subconscious. So you haven't followed through with that sort of internal vow that you made to yourself. But if you get up and you do that and you, follow through on the, that vow to yourself, your subconscious, which has been working on whatever it is that you're writing while you were asleep, will come through for you and you'll have a good experience writing. So that, that lesson that I learned from Mailer about discipline and about how important it was to be true to yourself in the sense that there's nobody there 
you, it's not like you have a boss who can say, well, you're not doing your job, you know, go back and you sit down and do your work. You have to be that boss of yourself. So, yeah. And you have to make those kinds of commitments to your art, to your, to your craft, that you get up and you do it every day, every day that you say that you're going to. And it, it's, if you do that, if you keep doing that, the discipline becomes uh, almost ingrained to the point where I wake up now and I just, it just is natural for me to, to sit down and start working. Okay. That's awesome. I love that. I love what you said there where you said that you almost, if you don't follow through with what you planned the night before, you're almost disappointing yourself. Like you're letting yourself down. I think a lot of, a lot of times and every, you can use this in any area of your life, right? It doesn't just have to be writing, but if you think about that, like I don't like disappointing other people. So why would I want to disappoint myself? I think that's very true that it, it does carry over to every aspect of your life. If you tell yourself you're going to do something, then you don't follow through with it. It's almost like you're disappointing yourself and that becomes ingrained in a way. So you think, oh, well, that's just the way I am. I don't do the thing. I don't follow through with the things that I say I'm going to. Yeah. But, uh, but following through, then subconsciously, I think your mind begins to depend on you and will show up for you the next day. Yeah. That's a huge, if anyone listening to this podcast, if you want to take notes, rewind back to that part, because I think that's, that's, that's a huge life lesson that everyone needs to really, everyone really needs to know. Like you need to know that like, if you're consistent in doing good for yourself, then that, that you're going to keep reaping those benefits. But if you're consistently letting yourself down, you're going to follow that pattern also. And, you know, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I have a book to write. I could write a book. I have a great life story. I have a well, write it. You know, talking about it, in fact, that's another lesson that I learned from Mailer, was that you can't, you can talk it out. You know, you could, you could spend your life in social situations with people telling them, oh, I've got this great book, this great story. But if you talk it out, you don't have the same kind of internal urge to write the story. So that was the other thing that another great lesson that I learned from Mailer was never to talk about whatever you're working on, keep it sort of to yourself, and then write it. Instead of talking about it, don't write it, write it out instead of talking it out. That's awesome. I love that too, because again, I, I, I feel like if you're talking about something so much, it, it loses its concentration almost. So it'd be much more poignant when you sit down and you write it out. Exactly. And it, you lose the energy that you have within you to do it because you've talked it out. So many a great novel has gone by the bar somewhere down the street with people. Say, yeah, I got a great book. I could write this book and then go home and they don't write the book. Yeah. I read um, Big Mad, I think Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And in that she talks about how sometimes how if you get an idea and you don't act on it, then someone else is going to act on it. So I think it's super important to put that energy down when you when you get the inspiration. That's true. It's almost like when you have an idea, it goes out into some kind of atmosphere, mental atmosphere somewhere, and someone else could pick up on that idea. So often it's happened to me where, oh, I have a great idea for a story, and then I don't do anything about it. And the next thing I know, I'm reading about somewhere, somewhere, the guy, someone else is writing that story. Yeah. It's amazing how often that you hear, hear those stories. So, Richard, you've worked on a lot of projects. 
What is the project that you're most proud of? You know, I think it's very common for writers to be most, most enthusiastic and proud of whatever they're working on at that given time. Okay. And once you've done something and you've written it, you think, oh, good, it's done. And then it goes out there and it's almost like having a child. I mean, not that I've ever had one. I certainly have children of my own. But, yeah. but I mean, giving birth. You give birth to a work of art, so to speak. And once it gets out there in the world, then it, it has a life all of its own. So while it's inside you, it, it's the most important thing in the world to you. And then once you've finished it and put it out there for the world, it's it's becomes uh, it's not it's yours, but it's also the whole world's. So it's whatever you're working on at any given time. I think for me anyway, is always the most important aspect of whatever I'm working on. So when you write when you write your work and it goes out into the world, how do you handle when people are interpreting? what you've written maybe in a way that you didn't intend for it to be interpreted. Does that make sense? Makes tremendous sense. A lot of people will read something and have a totally different interpretation of what you meant with what you wrote. And you'll be listening to them and think, well, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but it depends. I mean, obviously if it's something that is objectionable to you, you might want to try to correct them or at least say, well, wait a minute, I had, that was not what I had in mind at all. And I can remember, you know, I have kind of an unusual life experience, as I'm sure you know about, and uh, writing about it. And I remember doing a Q&A after uh, I had spoken about my writing and someone says, well, you know, why are you coming out here and telling us these, about these experiences and who do you think you are? And, you know, and it was very kind of upsetting to me. Mm -hmm. But I believe that if you have an unusual experience, an unusual life experience, and you write about it, then you have to really get behind it and be proud of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that if, if, if it upsets other people and makes them angry, well, that's their problem, not, not mine. Yeah. I know um, your, the second book that you wrote when you were about um, your experience in prison, it definitely helped me a lot and helped my family a lot, actually, because we had a situation where we had a fam family member who went to prison. And um, so I, I guess I want to say thank you for writing that because it definitely helped a lot with our family because we were able to not understand the experience because I'm never going to say that I understand what it's like, but it, it made it a lot more. Um, it, I don't, I don't know how to, to say what I'm trying to say, but it definitely helped us out a lot. So yeah, I, accessible, you kind of think, yeah. Oh, well, you know, yeah, no, I, I think that's important. And I think right now I'm working with, uh, I, you know, I do a lot of sort of post conviction and work helping with people that are have issues with the law. And I'm working with a young man now who's uh, getting ready to go to prison. And I'm advising him on that based on my own experience and telling him that, you know, look, it's the experience is going to be whatever you make it. Yeah. It could be a terrible experience, but it could be it could be a, a growing experience, a growth experience for you. You could come out a better person. Yeah. Did you ever imagine that you would be giving back so much to the community in that way? You know, I think I always wanted to, and I'm certainly grateful that I'm able to do that. I mean, you know, with the sort of war on drugs and everything that we've gone through in this country and a lot of people getting locked up for uh, 
reasons that in my mind are not valid reasons for someone going to prison, like growing a plant. Um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been gratifying to me to be able to help other people who are going through that experience. Yeah, that's awesome. Cause I, I know that, I know that that's going to pay dividends for not only for you, but for the people that you're working, that you're helping as well. So, yeah, there's a, uh, a saying that I've been telling this guy that uh, he's getting, don't serve the time, let the time serve you. And that's the, I think the essence of what that whole experience is about. Instead of serving the time, make it serve you so that you do something constructive with it. Yeah. So you come out better, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So how did you start working with Hollywood and start in the entertainment industry? Um, well, uh, what happened was that I got, I met a woman by the name of Barbara Koppel, who is a documentary filmmaker. And in fact, an Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker. And I met her through a mutual friend of mine, and she was getting ready to do a documentary about Mike Tyson, who had recently, at that point, just gone to prison on a rape charge. And she knew nothing about boxing. And she had to write a proposal for the documentary. Even though she had the gig, they, as usual, they wanted something written out that we tell them, the, the studio executives, exactly what the documentary was going to be. And my friend introduced me and said, this is a, a friend of mine who's a writer and who also knows a lot about boxing and, and uh, martial arts and whatnot. So maybe he could write it for you. So I ended up writing the, the proposal for her for the documentary that ended up being uh, on N NBC TV. And while I was working on that documentary, uh, I, I fell in love with the whole idea of making documentary films. I thought, wow, this is great. It was running around from one place to another on the payphone, setting up shoots and putting people together. And I thought, this is actually more fun than what I used to do. And uh, they won't lock me up for it. So I just <laughs> fell in love with the whole idea of, of making documentary films. And from that one, that film did really well. But then we, I worked on another film called When We Are Kings about Muhammad Ali that won an Academy Award. So that was my beginning was working on documentary films. Then I got hooked up with Mark Levin, who he and I have been collaborating, working together for many years on films. We did a bunch of documentaries for HBO. And then we made a movie called Slam that became this huge breakout success. It was a feature film with actors, but it, was ba it, was, it had a lot of documentary-like attributes to it. And it became a very successful, low-budget, independent movie that won the uh, Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, and it won the, the Camera d'Or at Cannes back in 1998. So that was my beginning. After that, we were on a roll, you know, then I started, I uh, developed, created and developed a TV series called Street Time about people coming out of prison on parole. Okay. Yeah, and I love the Gotti series too that you, that you worked on as well. The Gotti series, right. Yeah. The documentary series that we just did last year, which yeah. was uh, four hours that we did for A&E, right, about the relationship between John Gotti Sr. and John Gotti Jr. And that began for me actually as a, as a magazine article. I was hired to write an article that won, end, ended up winning an award, a New York Press Club Award, and got to know John. 
So then when the idea for the documentary came along, when A&E asked me if John would, would contribute to it, would be part of it, then I went to John and said, you know, it would be basically similar to what we did with the, with the uh, article. And, you know, he'd never been on camera before and he'd never really been interviewed before. So it was a new experience for him. Yeah, that was a tremendous thing. I, um, I'm Italian. I grew up in South Jersey. So anything, when I was watching that, I was like, oh, it was just, again, the way that you put it all together. It's, it's amazing to me how you, when you're putting, when you're writing, the way that you have the ability to really just put people in the moment whether it's with your writing or the way that you do the documentaries. It was, it was amazing. It was awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I think what it is for me is I look for whatever the universal experience is that might come through in the story. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Gotti story, of course, it was that father-son relationship, which I think most men and even mothers and daughters, I mean, that, that experience, that what it's like to grow up as a young man and look up to your dad and be so involved in who your father is. And I mean, in John's case, of course, his father was uh, the most powerful gangster in the world and also a very charismatic guy, very funny guy, very a guy that, that people were immediately attracted to, even though he was a criminal and a gangster. So I, that, I thought to myself, you know, this is, this is basically a father-son story. And if yeah. I can stay focused on that, then it will appeal to people because even women will be interested because they'll, they'll think of their husbands or their sons and they'll think of the relationships that are going on between their husbands and their sons and they'll relate to it that way. So finding some subject that's relatable to a universal audience, I think is the key. Yeah. Awesome. Now, is that something that you learned or is that something that as you gain more experience, that's something that you just pulled out then that you've. I think it's both. I think it's something that I've always look, I know because of my own, ex my own relationship with my father and knowing how important that was, even in its, dysfunctionality, so to speak. Uh, the fact that I didn't really ever have a strong relationship with my father and how that kind of helped mold my character. I realized that this is something that, it, that any man and any boy is going to be able to relate to. So I think that as a writer and as a filmmaker, I've always tried to find those universal experiences that anyone, no matter where they're from, what language they speak, we're all human beings, so we all go through similar experiences. And if you, can, if you can make your story about something that's relatable so that all people can look at it and say, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this story is trying to tell me or what this story is opening up to my mind, then it becomes something that, is, that, that everybody can relate to. Yeah, that's awesome. So... Do you have any projects that you're able to talk to coming up or? Well, I do have a project that I'm working on now that I can talk about because I finished the book, you know, under Mailer's strict instructions. I didn't even, I don't think I actually even told Antoinette about this too much while I was working on it because I didn't want to open it up. But I, I was reading a book called The Art of Cross-Examination, which is a book that lawyers read. And in it, I found this story of a woman who 
got married to a, a guy who came from an entirely different social class that she came from. She was she worked as a as a house servant as a maid, and her father was black and her mother was white. They were English, but they lived they moved to this country, and she ended up marrying this guy who was from one of the top families social families in New York City at the time. And when her when his father found out about it, he made the boy leave her and then went to have the marriage annulled. They brought a lawsuit against the woman saying that she had defrauded him into marrying her by hiding the fact that she had black blood. Oh, wow. By hiding the fact that she had black, uh, that she was partially black, mm -hmm. which was bogus because she knew the father, she knew all, of, I mean, he knew the father, he knew all about it. But anyway, <laughs> that case became a very, very, uh, I hate to say very, very, it reminds me of someone <laughs> that I won't talk about right now. Uh, but it became a huge international case. And it brought up so many questions about race and about class mm -hmm. that resonated throughout the world. It was on front page newspapers all around the world. She fought the case bitterly. She was offered a lot of money to just accept the annulment and go away. But and it, her name was Alice Jones Rhinelander. And she went to trial with the case, fought against the family who was so wealthy that they brought all these great lawyers. And she ended up winning. She won wow. this case. And it's so, it happened back in the 1920s. But it's still as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. And I've just finished writing a book. What I did was I, I, I wrote the book from her and her lawyer's point of view. I oh, sort of wow. imagined that I was that her lawyer representing her and that I was her with her diaries. I created these diaries that um, told her side of the story. Wow, I can't wait to read that. I'm so excited. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting story because even though it's 100 years old, it's still very relevant when you look at what's going on in our country with the whole Black Lives Matter movement and yeah. all these issues of race that are still so much alive in our, in our, in our country. Yeah, and it sounds kind of like your story too about how you got yourself out of, um, out of prison by fighting for yourself also. Right, exactly. Being true to your beliefs. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I always love getting having the opportunity to talk to you. So I want to thank you for taking your time to be on the podcast and for sharing your story. And again, thank you so much for always being so willing to give back to our talent at VIP Ignite. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I love VIP. I love everything VIP is doing. It's been such a great movement. I mean, such a great opportunity for people to be able to get involved in VIP and learn about this, this whole business, the entertainment business, which is kind of mystifying if you don't have somebody that can help you learn the steps to get through it. Yeah, it's, it's a really steep mountain to climb unless you have the right people guiding you up the mountain. So. That's so true. That is and very true. We're very happy that you're one of our guides. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Janine. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Coffee in the Green Room. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. Don't forget to go to coffeeinthegreenroom.com for bonus materials, free gifts, and to learn how you can be on the next episode of Coffee in the Green Room. Coffee in the Green Room.